I'm Rachel Perkins, and you're listening to the Nordic Nation podcast from Faster Skier. In this episode, we've got Chad Salmola and Keegan Randall on to discuss the experience of calling the 2022 Beijing Olympic Winter Games live from a booth in Stamford, Connecticut. While Chad is a veteran analyst, this was Keegan's first Olympics inside the booth, working together alongside NBC play-by-play announcer Steve Schlanger. In this conversation, Keegan and Chad field a variety of questions on their experience, including everything from staying fresh while calling races in the middle of the night for two weeks straight, to maintaining professional composure while watching your teammates and friends win Olympic medals or come up short, and even, why are you suddenly pronouncing the Norwegian distance champion's name, Hog? Before we jump in, this episode is brought to you by Boulder Nordic Sport. Boulder Nordic Sport is the industry-leading resource for cross-country ski equipment, waxing, stone grinding, and hand-selected skis. Whether you are looking to tour at a local park, finish your 15th Berkey in style, or aiming for the next Olympic team, Boulder Nordic Sport's passionate staff can help you find the perfect gear for your cross-country ski experience. Visit bouldernordicsport.com to shop one of the biggest selections of ski gear in the country and download a digital copy of the annual BNS magazine. Check out the Boulder Nordic YouTube channel to watch our extensive waxing how-tos. Ski inventory is challenging this season, but we are receiving new gear every week, including the new floor-free race waxes from Holman Cole and Rody. And now let's hear from Chad and Keegan. Awesome. Well, um, yeah, thank you guys both for, for coming on. I know this has been a very busy stretch for both of you um, and really appreciate your time and um, yeah, I think, you know, a lot of people are, are probably in the same boat of being pretty curious of just what it, uh, what it, what it looks like. Um, and especially, you know, I think one of the big challenges with this games is like the, the time difference, um, and how, how that factors in. Um, but Chad, maybe I'll kind of kick it off to you first and just, I think over the years you've kind of become, um, the voice of cross-country skiing and, and biathlon, um, and people sort of just expect you to be part of the broadcast at an event like the Olympics. And, um, how many games have you called at this point? And, and what was the evolution of that in terms of like, how did you get started and, and when, and, and what does that look like over, over the years? Okay. Yeah. This is my fifth games. This was my fifth games for NBC and on television. And then I, did, I, I was the PA announcer for, um, all the biathlon. I was one of two PA announcers. I would did it with Scheller Christensen famous Norwegian stadium broadcaster uh, in Salt Lake. And I did the women's 30K because Peter Graves is doing the closing ceremony. So I did the 30K cross country in Salt Lake. Yeah. And then, um, I mean, I basically got on TV. I was doing like junior, I did like junior nationals in 1999 or 2000 or something like that. Like I did in Jackson, New Hampshire. I went over from Middlebury College where I was in school. And uh, people heard me do it kind of like, I think more cross country skier people heard me do those, J- those JNs. And then it kind of got out that I was doing it. Um, and then I ended up doing the Salt Lake games with the PA. And then uh, the, the, the producer for NBC on the biathlon was an independent producer, a guy named Kent Gordis, really good guy, comes from cycling. And he heard me on the PA system and Outdoor Life Network had just been launched. And he said, you know, we should really put this sport on, on Outdoor Life. It's like a perfect thing with hunters and, and endurance sport people. So um, he worked with U.S. Biathlon and Max Cobb, and they got sponsors, and they basically bought time on the Outdoor Life Network from 03 to 05, and we did biathlon. Then we were doing like 12 to 13 shows a year, so 12 to 15 shows a year. It was not a lot of work, but, it, you know, I'd fly to New York, and we'd do it all on super low budget and stand on the East River and act like we were in Oosterson Suite. <laughs> yeah, really fun stuff like that. And, and then Kent just put together a reel. He thought, Kent, I remember Kent telling me in like 2005-ish, 2004, he goes, you know, if biathlon was a major American sport, you'd, you'd have a really good living. You'd be making a really good living right now because you're good at this. I'm like, oh, well, cool. You know, I didn't really know what he meant. But now after 20 years in the business, I kind of, I kind of, I mean, I'm not trying to toot my own horn. I just, I just understand where my mind goes and what I, the way I see things and how I project my voice and use my voice and, and how I like telling stories and I like trying to make sure people understand what they're watching. I think that that's kind of like just gone to work for me in this, in this business. And, um, and yeah, so I, I called biathlon in 2006, Paul Robbins, who had been doing um, cross country skiing for CBS and NBC prior to me passed away in um, nine, 
in 2008 or 2009 and and then they um they didn't have anybody for for NBC so they um they asked me to audition and I and I got the job for 2010 and I've been doing all Nordic combined cross country and biathlon ever since. And Keegan, how did this come about for you? Well, of course, we have watched Chad do his thing and have always been passionate about how can we better tell the story of cross-country ski racing to the both the informed audience and also someone who's never seen the sport before. So knowing that my time would be a little more flexible after competing, um, I reached out to NBC and just told them I would be interested in try, trying it. And they gave me an audition and that was kind of cool. I, I called some of the races from Pyeongchang just with, with a play-by-play announcer. And it went surprisingly well, like going into it, I had no idea. I mean, I can appreciate how you think talking is easy, but then when you just have to constantly like look at so many different things at once, but I just found, I know the sport. I enjoy talking about the personalities. I can put myself in the racer's shoes. So the audition went well. I got a little opportunity with the world championships last year to do it remotely. Um, and so this year was hoping that for the Olympics, there might be space and uh, got the call. And it was so fun to join Chad and Steve and uh, be able to call the races and get my first real experience doing it. Yeah, I got to say too, it was really awesome. Like Keegan, so everybody in that crew was pretty much even down to our, our um, our, our, the guy who's cutting the shows for for the different the guy that our producer is working with to cut the shows, pretty much the same crew as from Pyeongchang. And, and like when Keegan came in to the to the first meeting, you could feel it like she was like a superstar in that crew. Like it was kind of like the gravity in the room just like got heavy. Like whoa, Keegan's here. It was really cool. <laughs> I don't know if she caught that, but I definitely caught it. See, I was coming in going, oh my gosh, these guys are professionals. They know how to do this. How's it gonna go? <laughs> <laughs> she you were very great. much like the awesome. new one in the group <laughs> it was totally awesome can you explain kind of the the play-by-play role versus the analyst in terms of um kind of just what some of the the logistics are maybe Keegan if you want to kind of take that one just in terms of like how that was explained to you since you are a little newer to this um just like what your role are and and some of the processes because I think there's sort of like certain times where the play-by-play person is supposed to be <laughs> calling and then maybe brings you in or just how does that um how does that work well as a uh, as an audience member of watching ski races I don't think I ever fully appreciated that there really are these unique roles and and the dance that goes back and forth of how you really make it smooth no one's talking over each other the right stories the right things are being pointed out so now that I've had a chance to really experience it um the play-by-play is really like the conductor Um, They come in, they set the scene, you know, basically a lot of the details of the venue, the location, the weather, which you need um, to really build it. And then they, uh, the play-by-play announcer can then kind of have an idea of where the production is going. You know, we of course never know exactly what's going to happen, but we we talk about it ahead of time. And so then as he's observing what's going on, he or she, then they can kind of go, okay, now's the time to pull in an analyst because there's something technical going on here. So they were really good at either kind of literally pointing to us in the booth or um, saying, you know, hey, Chad, how about that? Keegan, you have experience here and pulling us in. So I think a good play-by-play really feels that conductor role, sets the scene. And then when it comes down to some of those last details in the race, you know, the finish where you really, you're almost calling and now someone is ahead and here we go. And that's what we're going. Um, that's where someone who's just, yeah, I think really seasoned and knows exactly what to point out um, jumps in and fills that role. So there, there are certain pieces where, you know, the play by play is going to going to be the one speaking. And then other times uh, we just kind of free formed. And you guys are essentially watching the same live feed that we're seeing on NBC, right? You don't have extra camera angles or anything. Um, you're both shaking your head, so I'll just say no. Well, they, they, <laughs> have, they have one unilateral uh, camera. They call it unilaterals. They're, they're separate from the um, from the world feed, and we have a camera in the mix zone to do interviews. And that camera could be used to get Jesse coming through the stadium. But we had two monitors, so anytime they didn't, they did very little of it because there's only so much you can do with one camera in in the mix zone. <clears throat> but we'd get, we, you know, we'd cut to the American story every now and then for like five to 10 seconds and then go back to the world feed, but that's about it. 
And were you happy with that in terms of like being able to call, were there, were there races where you kind of were wishing like, I wish the, the TV production was done a little bit differently so we could see more inside the race or were you happy with what you, the information that you had and kind of what, what you were seeing? Yeah, there were a couple of times when they really went with a tight shot on the leader coming mm-hmm. around the finish and the real exciting race was happening for silver and bronze, oftentimes with Americans in that mix. So we're sitting there kind of on the edge of our seat, watching the winner who's kind of clearly going to take it and go and show the rest of the field. And they could have easily gone to a wider shot and we could have been able to talk, speak to all of it, but we kind of had yeah. to just wait <laughs> to see what was going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I can't remember which race it was, but there was, it was one of the races where either the team sprint or the relay, I think it was the relay when the, um, you didn't know it, Germany was coming in and it was like, right. As the leader came into the finish lanes, they zoomed in and they missed, like you could see somebody coming around the corner and you, and you knew that there was somebody gaining on her. <laughs> And like only 10 seconds back. And it was like, like I, I was yeah. yelling at my computer, like, yeah. oh my gosh, what's happening? Yeah, that's pretty that's a pretty common, it's a pretty common um desire by from sports like ours, like at, at an Olympic Games. Um, even even some of the World Cup stuff is not shot really, really well um for the sport because the maybe the cameramen aren't really trained on, on the sport. And I would say like that tight shot on something when Jesse was racing for the bronze. That was frustrating because if they had, if they had stayed on that shot any longer, we would have completely missed it. And we really only had, I went back and counted it. It was like four seconds from the time they cut away to the, from Sundling, like way too tight a shot on Sundling and then cut out so we could see Jesse racing. It was like three seconds. And you know, there's not much even Steve can do at that point to even call the race in. And um, I mean, forget it. Here comes Diggins moment because that was shot all from the side for a long time you had a nice big shot where you could see everything happening and and part of that is and i've worked in a production truck before and a lot of that stuff is just um a lack of familiarity and a lot of times you know cameramen are taught to like take tight shots to catch the drama and you can see that the cameraman on that shot was like and i don't know where they came from maybe they don't know here but they might have come from soccer they might have come from anywhere and that shot was too tight and it's just that's that's the game that's the those are the dice you roll when you're doing tv live you know um, what are the, some of the kind of pros and cons in terms of being in Stanford versus being in Jiangshaku or, or being even in, in Beijing? Um, and Chad, have you been in person calling other games or have you always worked? I always went into, I went to every games that I, I didn't went to the first three. I went to, um, Torino. I actually called Torino from the, from the IBC in Torino, but would go up on the days off and talk to the athletes. So I had co- contact and then I called. Vancouver and Sochi on site. And then I, I've called the last two from Stanford. So, um, but yeah, to answer your question, I think that um, I'll like he can say what she thinks too, but I, I think that first of all, I think people, people might make a bigger deal of us, about us not being there than is probably necessary for television. I mean, I think it's really nice. You know, I, I got, a, I got an opportunity to go back and call some world cups from Antolz and RuPaul and before the Olympics. And I hadn't done an on-site call in like for like, years probably at least six or seven years and it was really nice to particularly biathlon because i could see the wind i could see what was happening on the range and that could i could tell the story way better of like how that those races unfolded because of the wind and and, and the ontals races were very windy so like to not be there for pyeongchang or for um for beijing for the biathlon was definitely tough because i couldn't see I couldn't see the wind gusts as easily as if I was in the, in the, in the stadium. But I think the other thing is you lose a little bit of the atmosphere. You lose that, that proximity to the stories. You lose that proximity to the coaches and the athletes and in the mix zones. And even afterwards, I mean, if Keegan had been in Beijing, she would have had unfettered access to that team in a lot of ways when you don't, as, as an accredited media person, you don't really get to interact with those people. Like the best place you can get is mix zone. Otherwise you're completely separated from the athletes and probably for good reason. So like for, for a guy like me, who's not Keegan, um, it's not that huge of an advantage besides being in the being in the stadium and feeling the atmosphere. And, and I'll go back to like like the day that um, I, I remember Al Al Troutwig and I walked into the stadium the day Dario Colonia was trying to win his third straight 10k, and we saw him warming up on the side as we were walking up to our our commentators booth. And I, I got chills. You know, it's like like you get that feel of the venue. You can smell the the wet snow and. The, the, the trees are, are warm. You can smell that it's warm. It's like just the feeling of it. And you don't get any of that when you're in the studio. And I think that's a shame. 
Yeah. Well, you certainly have more experience because I have never done the in-person call. Um, you know, I will say what are some of the advantages of being in Connecticut uh, were that we actually got to interact with the other sports and we got to interact with the larger production teams. And I feel like for cross country and, and biathlon and Nordic combined, those are all sports that need a little bit of networking. You know, you need to rub shoulders and, and just kind of have a presence. And so I felt like that was really good. Um, it also, um, I mean, if we had gone to Beijing's uh, a unique case because of just the COVID protocols. And I really think we would not have been able to do much. So I feel like in Connecticut, we were able to maybe communicate more and just, just be a little bit more flexible. And we were gonna be staring at the same screen regardless. <laughs> that said, I do, I do wish that I had been able to say, you know, maybe I'd been, would have been able to get out on course and to actually ski those trails, I think would give you a greater appreciation for the conditions, for how steep those hills are that you just can't get when you watch it on TV. And then just to, to see the athletes, see their faces, you know, see their body language, I think speaks a lot to where they're at that you can pick up on, but unless you're there in person, you wouldn't be able to tell. For sure. And I, going back to, going back to Sochi, when I was on, on site, I got to ski the courses before I called any races. And that, though, if you know anything about the Sochi courses and Keegan does, like that's, that's like one of the characters of the story of the entire games is being out that long climb from the blue loop all the way back up into the stadium. And I was like, holy crap, like, this is crazy. This is crazy trail design. So, I mean, I, I think that, you know, there are instances where it definitely would be, but, but going back, it was also kind of fun to go in. So NBC has a big commissary where the food is free. It, it was going 24 seven and it's fun. Like Keegan and I are coming in and Ted Ligety and, and Steve Perino are sitting there and they're just got, got done. And we're talking with their son. I mean, you, you never get that out of game. So in a lot of ways, this was a really unique games and Keegan wouldn't know this, but it was like, it was kind of fun. And I, I think Keegan's right. I think we got some cross pollination. I think like, for example, Jimmy Roberts watched more biathlon because he was the host of our show and he appreciated it. And he told me so, in, uh, you know, in a private message after the games that he loved watching biathlon and he's going to miss it, which is really cool. And in terms of the schedule, um, I appreciate kind of seeing some of both of what you guys shared through the games in terms of just, yeah, I mean, I, I am lucky that when I'm reporting, I can be like in my pajamas in my kitchen and no one's going to see me. And, uh, you know, it doesn't matter that it's, you know, one or two in the morning. Um, but for you guys, you're like, you know, you're, I don't know, maybe you can still be in your pajamas, but you're like, you're in a studio, you're, you know, you're working, um, and you got to really be on, like, you got to be ready to go and alert. And, um, so yeah, in terms of kind of navigating that, schedule and how that kind of throws off like your circadian rhythm and, and everything, you know, just, um, what was, what was that like in terms of navigating, yeah, navigating those time changes and, and being ready to go and yeah, kind of staying, staying fresh enough that you can do that for two weeks. Oh, Keegan had it easy. She just had to do cross country. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I had a cush schedule. It was only one event per day. And I actually flew from Alaska all during the day and showed up at the studio just a couple hours before the women's skiathlon. So I feel like I just jumped onto the schedule right away and that really helped. And because it was the first event and they just had the opening ceremonies, you just had the opening enthusiasm of the games. And then right there, I just I stayed disciplined and would go to bed at 8 a.m. in the morning, kept my curtains closed in my room the entire time, wore a night mask, would wake up at 4 p.m., and, uh, and then we had a little gym in the hotel and, uh, Hannah Carney, the uh, commentator for the free, uh, freestyle events was posting these awesome little challenge workouts with dumbbells. So I like, I'd go in, get a little workout in, um, do some, do some regular work and then get in the mode of researching all the stuff that was coming up. And then Chad and I would grab the shuttle, head in, grab a meal, and then we just do our thing to the night. So I, I don't know, I kind of just enjoyed the uniqueness of it. And for me as a parent and, and in a new job, like it was actually kind of a nice schedule. Cause it was so predictable, um, that, uh, I just, yeah, just really flowed after the relay and the team sprint. I did find myself pretty amped. I think just from watching and wanting, you know, the, the skiers to do so well that it was a little hard to go to sleep <laughs> after that. I was, I was going to ask actually, cause I saw it 
like on Strava, you had like some one in 1am workouts. <laughs> and I wasn't sure if that was, you know, like trying to like go to sleep and like, just, you know, like wear yourself out a little bit, or if that was just like part of the day or yeah, how that all worked. But how about for you, Chad? What was that? Uh, it was, it's, it was, I mean, I, I don't remember it being this hard in Pyeongchang, but it was the same number, almost the same number of events. I think I had 25 medal events then and I had 25 medal events here, but um, it became, I think something about something like the third, well, the difference was, is when, when I was in Pyeongchang, everybody was in Pyeongchang and I was in Connecticut. So there was no, like, there was nothing extra going on. But when they, when they moved all the commentators to Stanford, just all of a sudden they had all this content they didn't have normally when they would be on the ground at the games that they started filling with studio time and having people like Alice, like Keegan and I get in wardrobe and makeup and go in and do these shows. And at the, the second day, after the second day, I had a, I think I went in at 7.30 because I was a little amped to get in to prep. I think our first show was at 1 a.m. Then the, the biathlon was at 3.30 or 4 a.m. And I got done at like 5.30 or 6 a.m. And I was kind of like, trying to decide what to do. Do I go back? And the shuttle wasn't there. So I went and laid down in a conference room because they wanted me in hair and makeup at like 10 and wardrobe. So I went and took a nap, did hair and makeup, did the show, got done. It was one at one in the afternoon. So I had been on since 7 30 PM to 1 PM the next day. And I was a wreck that, and that was day two. And I'm like, okay, I can't do this. And normally what I do is I prep all my stuff. Like for every show I do online on cable or the Olympus, I usually do my own prep because it's kind of the way I prepare for the race. And, and each, each event usually takes at least an hour and a half. So you're doing, you know, two races, three to five hours of, of prep time. And I, I finally just said, I realized if I'm going to survive this and I'm going to keep doing these things, these hits in the studio, I got to go back and sleep between them or I, I can't hang out at, at NBC. I got to get a car, go back and sleep and come back and do the hits. And from that point on, I had two great, we had two great um, statisticians. We had uh, Dave Jarrett, who was a, a stud in his own right as a coach. He was the mastermind of the, of the medals they won in Nora Combined in 2010. And then um, Brian Halligan from, came in for biathlon. The guy I didn't really know, and, and I got suggested to, to work with me, and they were both great. And I finally just caught, I got in touch with both of them after, day, after that day, and I said, listen, guys, I might even have time to do this prep, but I'm just going to I'm gonna offload it all onto you. Here's what I have on my start list, and it's a lot. Like, there's a lot of stuff on there, and it's all color-coded. And I said, just copy this, do, do, give me this, put it in front of me at the start of the show. And that's what I want you to do the rest of the games. And I don't care what else you do, but do that. And that's what they did. And it was great. Save my, it saved my ass. <laughs> I wanted to ask a little more about that in terms of just like that, that preparation, like to what extent, like, are you getting notes on some of the athletes to what extent, like, are you doing that on research on your own? And, um, like, to, yeah, I, th I think like for Keegan, like you, you have in, like you, you've followed, you've worked with a lot of these athletes either as teammates or you've competed, competed against them. Um, but there has been several years since you were racing on the world cup. So to what extent did you have to kind of like learn some of these newer names and, and what did that just like, yeah, the preparation process look like in terms of who to watch out for and, and what the stories are and, and that kind of thing. Well, first off, I knew I was working with a great team. And so that just automatically, I knew I didn't have to remember every stat because Chad would. And uh, I knew that Steve would tee up really well some of the things that, that I could speak best to. That said, I did want to kind of remind myself, you know, who were past champions in these events? Um, how have some of these racers been doing this season? NBC gave us this great research packet that had bios on a lot of the athletes, which was fun because there were things in there I learned that I didn't actually know about some of my competitors I raced against. Um, but I think my role was really about just speaking to the feel of what's going on, like the things I have experienced. And so initially I got a little worked up about having to do all this background. And I found that I was better to just go in and speak to what I was seeing and, and the stuff, a lot of it was there. And like I said, Chad would come in with the stats when we needed. So I got, yeah, kinda, I got kind of spoiled. Keegan is in what I would call the sweet spot right now. She's so current to everything that she didn't like. And she even asked me, she, she texted me a few days before, what should I be studying? And I said, you know, really Keegan come in and sit down and, and watch the show and, and say what, say what comes to your mind. Because I, you know, she's so current with all the athletes that, I mean, when I was Keegan's, when I was that far out of my competitive range, like in, in early two thousands, I could do the Salt Lake games off the top of my head. And my, my, my mind was more limber. I was younger. I could remember stuff. I didn't do any, I hardly did any prep. 
And I didn't think Keegan really needed to do prep because we were essentially two color commentators for the price of one. And I could do a lot of stuff that I knew Keegan wouldn't necessarily be prepared for. But I also have to do stuff because I'm so much older now. I don't know any of these athletes firsthand. Like I've never met Johannes Tingisbo. I've never met, you know, I know Jesse. That's about it. I know Jesse and Rosie and the Americans and, and Julia, and that's about it. But I barely know Haley. So it's like, for me, I actually, when you amass a body of doing this, this type of work, you start prepping for the stuff when you're talking and all of a sudden you go, uh, what was that again? I don't remember what, you know, in your mind, you're going, I, where is that? Where is that? And it throws you off. And that's why you prep because, um, you know, when I'm doing a biathlon thing, I, I, you got to be, NBC is not going to let you say anything incorrect. They've got people listening to us and they're letting us know if we said something wrong. And you know, I had to correct myself a couple of times because I said something that was off a little bit. You know, that's one of the things a lot of people don't realize about the, about NBC is they are absolute sticklers on being correct. So, you know, people are listening to you, they're scrutinizing what you're saying. So you have to be ready there. But the other thing is like, I probably, when I prep, I probably use 3% of everything I prep. I really do, but I know what I'm going to want to look to. So I always have like a bunch of stuff taped to a wall, pinned on the wall that I, I can go to. And it's all part of the prep. Then I have my start list. Like I told those guys I needed. And I know where my eyes have to go to get what I'm looking for all the time. And it's part of a system. And, and the more Keegan will do this, she'll probably need to do that too. But, you know, now that I'm 20 years older than I used to be when I first started doing this, like I have to do that prep work just to feel safe, just to feel comfortable that, and to be seamless on the air, like you don't see me doing it, but my eyes are going all over the place and finding stuff when I, people say, he knows this stuff. And I don't know this stuff. I've written it down and I've prepped it so that when I want to use it, I know where it is. And it's definitely not coming off the top of my head. It's prep work. How about um, name pronunciation? So uh, <laughs> one of the things, I don't, there was a uh, kind of an entertaining meme that went out right after the skiathlon uh, about Trace Yohog or Yuhog. Um, and how, how to say that name, it was like a U-Haul truck where they had replaced the L in Hall with a G, um, because I think most people were kind of most familiar with hearing her name as more of a Yo-Hog sound. Um, so that one seemed to get a lot of attention, but how do you, you know, like where, how do you decide on like, what is how you'll pronounce names and then like sticking with it? So like, if somebody says something differently than is on that whatever that agreed upon name is like, are you hearing that in your mic or like, you know, what are what do you, what's, what does that look like? You got another podcast hour. <laughs> uh, yeah, this is, uh, this has been really, this has been a real issue every time the Olympics come up. I mean, if you remember Clabo, like that was the thing, I mean, we were calling English speaking world calls him Clabo and that's not right either. The real pronunciation is Johannes Hussle Clabo and Clabo is really a hard thing for, I think for Americans to like, see on the screen and say but it, it wasn't you know we were saying claybo like everybody in america says claybo and and they were right nbc said his name is not claybo but then they made me call him clabo and it's and clabo is not any writer any more right than claybo it's clabo it's like clala chad the ae is like a chad and so we got stuck with clabo because we've now been doing it for four years and, and I've, I've i had to change and i mean that was a really hard thing for me to change so then when they came to me with you hug and i was like what I think Keek and I are both like, what are they going to make us say? But, uh, you know, so they, they had a, they had it. So I even went to Tron Neistat and said, they want me to say you hug. And he goes, well, you know, that that's actually kind of like what we say in Norway, but it doesn't make sense for Americans because there's a J-O there. So I get your, your problem. So it, it's not, you know, the Norwegians actually kind of pronounce it like you, you, it's not J-U, but it's a U kind of like, like the class. So like to get all that nuance, the hard part I have, and I, and I understand why NBC is doing this, but the hard part I have of it is they make us all do this huge phonetic change that is really still just anglicized of Yuhog, Yuhog, you know, how, how the Norwegians say it. And I, I, I'll, I'll say it 50 times and maybe not get it exactly right because I'm not speaking Norwegian. I'm speaking English in the American accent. But, you know, that, that's what we were handed down and that's what we had to learn how to do. I mean, I'm getting everybody going, what is this, this Yuhog? You ugly. I'm like, well, I, I just, I let it go. So this is the first time I've talked, talked about it because it's, it's a fairly contentious point and, and I have it every time. And I, I mean, my point is like, we never say Permakoski. We never say, we don't even say Niskanen right. We don't say the Finnish names, right? And there's a, Are we going to say Katri Lulunpera on an English speaking thing? I mean, Steve can't pull that off. I mean, Keegan can barely pull off Katri Lulunpera and I barely get it right. So 
So there's this, there's this whole um, difficulty between our, how correct are we gonna be compared to what language we're speaking and the phonetics we use and, and, where, and how far does it go down? It, it, and my, my point is that when we bring up the Finns, we don't say the Finns right, but, but the only guy we gotta get right is Niskanen because he's winning a lot of medals. We don't worry about the people who are further down, but if they became a favorite like, like Teresa, then they're gonna scrutinize what we say because 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 then Mike Tirico has to say it in studio and Jimmy Roberts has to say it in studio. It's not just me, Stephen Keegan. It's everybody, all NBC wide. We all got to be on the same page. So when they say it's gonna be Uhug, we're gonna call it Uhug. And even though everybody's gonna roll their eyes, that's what we have to do. Sorry, Keegan, I didn't mean to take that one from you. But if you want to add something, go ahead. No, it was it was something I didn't expect coming in, and so I had to put sticky notes around uh, in front of the screen to like. <laughs> you hug, you know, and I, and a couple of times I literally caught myself like about to say it wrong and had to kind of stutter a little bit to get it right. <laughs> so it felt very awkward. Um, I think we also have to find a balance between, you know, trying to be as correct and specific about the sport as possible, but also recognizing that our audience is not necessarily all Nordic skiers. And so if, if uh, someone who's never seen the sport before comes on and they see us, hear us kind of awkwardly pronouncing these names, you just hope that doesn't turn them off to go, God, well, that's right. a sport I, I can't even, because I don't know, mm. sometimes when you hear someone try to pronounce it and it sounds awkward, it, it like, it feels uncomfortable. It's I'd almost rather, yeah, hear the slang. So, but they're the boss. And, uh, I think, I think we got through it. I think for the most part, people knew what we were talking about. <laughs> Yeah, and Kiki makes a really good point that I think a lot of people who listen to Faster Skier and who listen to this don't really understand is that, um, you know, how many, how many people who even like cross-country skiing or even have ever watched it are even watching a primetime show. So when Jesse was on, when Jesse and Rosie were primetime on the sprint, even though it's three segments and it's a boiled down version, you know how many people are watching on primetime? It's at least 10 million people. I mean, like, you've got to put these things into perspective. Like, the, the broadcast of NBC Sports coverage of the Olympic Games for cross-country skiing might drive you absolutely crazy. But when it gets on primetime, you're talking double, you're talking 10 million plus people and cross-country skiing doesn't get that opportunity very often. So you just got to like, you've got to realize things aren't going to necessarily speak right to you as, the, as a Nordic skier who knows what's going on. And you've got to get past it because it's just, it's an opportunity that we don't get very often. Quick interruption to say thank you to our second sponsor of today's episode, New Moon Ski and Bike, located in beautiful Hayward, Wisconsin's picturesque Northwoods region, which borders Michigan's Upper Peninsula. The region is home to the country's largest cross-country ski race, the American Berkebiner, and has over 100 kilometers of cross-country ski trails that stretch from Cable to Hayward. Some have named the trail as the number one cross-country ski destination in the entire U.S. The Berkey trails are groomed and maintained for both skate and classic or ditch the skis altogether and go fat biking instead. Hayward boasts more than 50 miles of groomed fat bike trails to choose from. New Moon has ski and fat bike rentals available with experts ready for the waxing and repair services. New Moon is the area's premier shop for skis, snowshoes and fat bikes, clothing, accessories, expert fitting and outstanding customer service. When in Hayward, look for them on Highway 63 in the Big Log Chalet or check them out online at newmoonski.com. And Keegan, in kind of a similar vein, I guess, um, kind of finding your voice as a broadcaster, like you, you mentioned just like stuttering a little bit to try to get that, that name out, but, um, you know, you, you've done quite a bit of public speaking, but I imagine like live TV during the Olympics is a little different than, you know, to Chad's point, speaking to a bunch of diehard cross country fans at the Berkey or something like that, you know, um, so what were you feeling heading into that, that first show and, and how did kind of your, your comfort and confidence in your role change over the course of the games? Well, coming into it, I really tried to think about ways we could talk about the sport that your average viewer could understand. I mean, Chad and the Chad and I in the shuttle on the way to the production every night was just like, okay, what if we called it like the, okay, the red line, how do we explain what the red line is? All right. Well, it's like sprinting up a case, you know, a staircase and then doing it again and then again, you know, or we came up with the matchbook analogy. So I, I really just enjoy the challenge of trying to relate the sport. So I tried to kind of step outside of my experience and the knowledge there um, to have some fun with it. And I uh, really just tried to go in and like anything, I knew I was new. 
I was going to do the best I could. I think overall it went pretty well. I definitely learned some great things. It was really fun. We had races back to back because you'd get done with the show and you go, okay, next time I want to do this. And you'd get a chance right again the next night. And it was really cool. Like, even though we were in these small booths with plexiglass in between, I could see Steve, I could see Chad and we were like doing eye contact back and forth. And um, so that part was good because if I felt like maybe I missed something, you know, sometimes just to like see that no one else was cringing, it was like, okay. Um, and then we did have the producer in our ear on the headphones, but overall um, it worked out better than I thought. I, it just, it felt really natural for me and just fun to talk about the sport and to see such great performances unfolding. And, you know, especially during the, the team sprint, I think, um, there, you were set up several times to kind of like discuss your own race, um, from 2018 and, um, how do you kind of, and it seems like a lot of that was kind of like fed, you know, you were, you were set up for talking about yourself versus like you volunteering that own information. Um, but how do you kind of think about that balance of sort of like inserting your own race experiences versus, um, trying to sort of just analyze what's happening in front of you and, or tying the two together. Well, I think that was what was really unique about being able to have me on the broadcast so soon after my career, uh, because people saw that gold medal race, they, they know they have that visual image. So to be able to speak to then to really kind of pull some of that feeling into these performances, uh, was really fun. One thing that kind of tripped me up every so often was I am so used to talking about we and like our team, we do this. And here I was, I was not no longer part of the actual American team. I was, you know, kind of neutral. So I had to catch myself a couple of times wanting to say, well, you know, putting myself there and going, nope, nope, I've got to say the American team. And I think there were a couple of little slips up in there, but overall pretty good. So, um, you know, I think it was, it was cool to be able to talk a little bit about having been there having been in these positions. I mean, we had 10 rookies on the team and I remember what that first Olympics felt like. It's a very special feeling. And so I'm happy. I got to add a little bit of that emotion to it. Um, and I think you added a lot sides. to it. I think you added a lot. I think that, I mean, I think about the role that I usually have to play and now at 50 years of age, I mean, I'm 20, 20 plus years past competing. And, um, you know, I, I, like I told Keegan, it's like, it's one thing for me to like say what it's like to be a competitor. I, you know, I competed internationally, but I was never a standout. I never was never racing for medals. And just to have somebody really who's done that had so much, it had so much gravity to the color commentary that um, I could never bring that. And that's, what's great about Keegan and Keegan was so comfortable in the booth that it just, it played so well. And it also allowed me to do other things that I had to also do as a color analyst when it's just me and Steve, I, and I noticed when Keegan wasn't there for the 30K and the 50K, well, the 28K, um, but uh, it was really, it was really, I kind of missed having Keegan there, whereas I didn't really know how, I wasn't sure how it would work with three commentators. I mean, Alpine made it four. They had Ligeti, Perino, and, and, uh, and, and Lindsay all in the booth with a play-by-play guy, and they did great, you know, but Keegan, I think what was great about ha having the two of us is that Keegan could really bring things into the current racer mentality. And then I could actually focus on stuff that I would, when I have to do that as well, I might lose sight of fact, especially in the individual start races when they're starting against the clock. It's really, as, a, as an analyst, you can't expect the play-by-play -play person to really follow the complexity of the split times. And actually telling those stories. So while Keegan is talking, I am free to like set up as a color, as a, as a second analyst, I'm able to set up the story of, of that individual start race. And, and I think I, we did a better job of presenting the individual start races during these Olympics than I've ever done in any instance doing an individual start race in my entire career, because we had that freedom. I had Keegan to be able to do the, that analyst and I could set up the story of the race and how it was unfolding based on the splits. And that was really nice. Um, how about feedback? Like in, in, to what extent do you kind of take into consideration feedback that you get, whether that's, you know, via social media or other sources? Um, and, you know, you're, you're speaking to a primarily American audience, um, but even there, you know, that you have some eager Nordic ski fans who maybe, um, you know, and faster skier gets this also, but that we're maybe too gentle and kind in certain situations to, to our American athletes or, or to Canadian athletes or, um, what have you, but, uh, is that something that you take into consideration or that you're receiving or, 
it's just not even on the radar when you're working. Great, Keegan. I mean, I would, I would say, I mean, given the Olympics, uh, and the NBC domain, um, I, I felt most concerned about making sure we were do th doing things right for NBC, because I feel like it's an opportunity. If we can continue to prove we have an interesting sport, we have people that can add a lot to the broadcast, maybe it unlocks the door to do more. And so I was focused mostly on that. And there was really so much to do. It was hard to spend too much time, um, going through comments that said, I, I love feedback. I always look to improve. And it was helpful when, um, someone commented to me, you guys were talking about the red line and I have no idea what the red line is. And it's like, okay, yeah, that's, we mm -hmm. need to be aware of some of those things that we don't even think about that we can do better for the audience. Yeah. I mean, I get, I, I I'm for, I feel really lucky to, to have done this this long and, and get as much positive feedback as I get. And I'm not trying to toot my own horn, but I'm lucky. It's like, cause I think I would wilt under, under that kind of, uh, under consistent scrutiny or hate. <laughs> I just, I don't do well with it because I, I, that's just, you know, that's who I am, but I do get constructive criticism every now and then. And, and, and it's, and a lot of times it's really good criticism. And then other times it's just like people who just don't like the way I do what I do. And, uh, you know, the fact of the matter is if the majority of the stuff, if the majority of the feedback was like, you know, you suck. I hate the way you yell. I hate the way you get excited. It's so, and, and I, and I, I get people I've gotten, you know, I got handfuls of that. It wasn't a lot, but I get it every games. And if that was the majority of the feedback, um, I, I would probably just exit. I'd probably say, you know, I don't think I need this in my life. I think, uh, so I, I think getting positive feedback for the most part, like the majority of the feedback is positive and people like what you do. And I think both Keegan and I got pretty good. We, we got a pretty, I mean, I didn't see Keegan's entire, uh, social media feed, but, um, I think, I think we were a good team. I think Steve is a great play-by-play -play guy and, and he was perfect for, for Keegan and I to work with. And, um, and I think it went really well. I'd love to do it again in four years from now, because I think it's, it adds, I think having the three commentators was really great. It's, it, uh, it, it opens up more, it opens up better commentary. And I think it made the sports more interesting. And I think more people watched. And I think, yeah, I think there's a lot of people that are hoping that both of you are back <laughs> for, <laughs> for future uh, events like that. But, um, do you see ratings and do you know to what extent in terms of like looking ahead, like do you have any sense of what NBC or US ski and snowboard plans are in terms of, you know, cross country or biathlon coverage over the next few years? It's not great. I, I wish. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's really sad because I mean, I probably from, from the NBC side, like just from other commentators, like outside of like the sports, like, I mean, even Jimmy, Jimmy and, and Mike Tirico and, and Lindsay Zarniak, they're all really, really nice to me at these games. Um, and I have to say, I was really um, kind of taken aback by the love they showed um, these sports and, and the jobs we did uh, to, to present these sports. But the sad thing is, is at the same time, I knew that at the end of these games, I had no idea when the next time I might call a biathlon race would be um, or a cross country race for that matter. It's been, it's been over a year since I've called, we called the world championships last year and that was it. There was no world cup anymore. And with them on with the parked on Peacock right now, I don't know what NBC's plans are. I know that they are, they have a smaller production crew than they had prior to COVID, which a lot of people don't realize. I think people are getting frustrated, but you know they have half the crew that they used to have to produce this content. And when you don't have the crew to produce the content, it doesn't matter if you have commentators. You have so many people who can produce that stuff, and then they're producing snowboarding, and they're producing golf, and they're producing the the, the Super Bowl, they're producing all these American sports. And, and then they have the peacock option. Um, they're just doing what they can do right now. It's not like they, they're going, let's really screw over by Athlon and cross country fans. You know, they're not doing that. It's like if they could probably make it pay for itself and they knew it would pay for itself, then I think they would have probably hired us to do it. But, you know, I'm back doing Paralympics right now. And I could have been doing a cut rate special background voiceover for world feed that goes to peacock this weekend. I'm sure the biathlon folks would have loved that, but I, you know, I have to put food on the table too. And this is a better paying gig. And, and honestly, I love the Paralympics. I'm super excited to call the Paralympics, but that's a sad thing. It's like, you know, maybe if there was a little bit more commitment from some, some entities to get these things voiced over, maybe Keegan would be voicing over even biathlon this week. while I do this, or maybe she'd be doing this and I'd be doing biathlon and we could make it all work out. But those things still are going to have to work, be worked out in the wash. And this is a market like anything. I mean, I don't think it's going to just go away. I don't think it's going to dry up. I, I just don't think that, you know, they tried the Olympic channel four years ago and I don't know where that's going. It looks like it's receding and being sucked back in. 
And we're kind of going back to where we were pre-Olympic Channel. The pre-Olympic Channel is like I was doing every cross-country event, every biathlon event all year long for almost four years. And that was wonderful. I was like, I was making a living at it. Now it's kind of like, no, I don't know. I don't know where it's going. I I would love to go there with everybody and Keegan would too, I'm sure. But we'll just have to wait and see what, how the markets flesh out. Um, last kind of topic, I guess for you guys is, uh, just favorite races to call and, and specific moments that, that stand out to you looking back over the games. Um, so Keegan, you know, a lot of these women have been teammates in varying capacities. Um, you got to watch Jesse win two medals for the U S which is amazing. Um, but also watch Rosie come up short after kind of knocking on the door, you know, three times during the games being really close. I. Uh, and I listened to a really interesting interview with Kara Goucher after she called the summer games and she kind of had talked about um, just watching some of the races and kind of having to like put on her professional hat and like disconnect herself from the emotion of that. Um, just, you know, watching some of her, her former teammates or her friends or whatever, you know, fall short of their goals or, or have a great race even. Um, so I'm, I'm curious, like for either of you guys, were there moments where it was, you know, hard to watch, um, or maybe hard to maintain that kind of like professional composure, um, whether that's positive or negative and yeah. Uh, for sure. There, there's always a fine line because you, you can't help, but invest a lot of emotion in as you're watching and have to remind yourself that, um, some, some course emotion you want to put into what you're saying, because that helps the audience pick up on what's going on. But other times, yeah, I mean, we're always under the underneath the surface cheering for Team USA. So, um, you know, for, for Rosie's performances in particular, I mean, if you really take a step back and just look at her Olympics, I mean, in, incredible and a little bit heartbreaking because she was right there. And as a racer, you know, over time, she will hopefully feel very proud about what she's done. Because again, we think about 20 years ago, we, we being in contention for a medal was inconceivable. <laughs> and here she comes to the Olympics is competitive in all six events, hmm. narrowly misses a, a medal twice, um, not to mention the relays. So I hope she can be proud because at the end, the Olympics is the most flashy carrot out there, but it's also like one day or it's two weeks in your entire career. And so just to know that she was there and she's competitive, that's a feeling that will never leave you. So I'm, I'm happy for her that she has that, um, you know, it was interesting watching how much, uh, NBC wanted to focus on purely Jesse's results because of the medals and, and no doubt they're incredible and they're so important and so powerful. Um, but hard to see that, that Rosie's narrowly, you know, a, literally a stride behind, you know, really got, really got no, um, credit. So, so that was interesting, you know, in the team sprint, um, I wanted so badly for those guys to medal and in the four person relay as well. When I was watching the team sprint, I could see something in both Jesse and Rosie at the end of the semifinal. And I hoped it wasn't, but it just looked like they just ran out of gas a little bit. And I thought, well, maybe they're saving something, but I think that was maybe a little indication of when the pace really ramped up on that last lap. Uh, in the team sprint, it just looked like that little, that gear was missing. So sometimes you see things and you never know, um, gosh, that relay, it just always seems to be like one leg is just the crux and it's just, you know, it's a matter of 15 or 20 seconds. Uh, and so, you know, the team's just going to have to stay hungry for that one, but it's, it's so cool going into all these races. Just so hopeful is not even the right word. Cause it's so much more powerful than that now. And, I think, I think Jesse's performances speak for themselves. I think that they were, they were worth, worth every amount of uh, effort that NBC put into promoting them. And, uh, and, and I think we have to, any competitive program or any competitive endeavor has to focus on the, the end result. And Jesse came up big and, and that 30 K was just, it was a phenomenal effort and it was hard. It was hard, but, but awesome to watch. It was like, it was hard because it was just so difficult. Um, so I'll always remember that race. I'll always remember, I think I would remember Scott Patterson's, Scott Patterson's race was really spectacular on the cross country side. I think Rosie, he can set it right. I mean, Rosie had by all accounts, maybe the second best performance at an Olympic games by a single skier second to Jesse, um, Keegan, Keegan, Keegan and so- Sophie Caldwell could probably contest that a little bit, but if you look at top to bottom, what Rosie did race in and race out, it was an absolutely 
you know, if you take Jesse out of the picture, she would have been an amazing, it would have been an amazing American story at any point in American ski, ski history. So I think that that's got, you can't say enough about Rosie and the way the American media is, it's just where she's going to, that's where it's going to end up. It's going to end up in the, in the heap of like a bunch of other people who are also maybe worthy of good stories that we didn't see as much across the, the mainstream media. Um, the other thing for me personally, was the very first night of biathlon, Paul Schomer was in metal con contention. And Paul, I, I, Paul came to St. Scholastica, our small little college program in Duluth, which, you know, we've never had any major advantages of any kind as a college program in NCAA skiing. And to put him at the Olympics, first of all, was really, really special. And then to have him in metal contention and, and to have him go for it. Like he, it didn't work out. You know, he missed some shots and the wind died and he had a penalty loop, but he actually went in there with three of the best guys in the world for the last 10 years. He sticks his nose in him and follows them around the first lap and marks them. I mean, I was super proud, even though they had dropped back to seventh in the end. He gave it. He gave him a chance at a medal, and he went for it. And, and that was that was a super proud moment for me personally. That probably, you know, I hope it. I hope I didn't over oversell that at all because I shouldn't. It's it's not a medal performance. But to me personally, while I'm watching it in the booth, it's it, it was a it was a heartwarming moment. And finally, I think that what I loved about the last two men's biathlon races, um, the the men's relay and the men's mass start, they were so they were so dramatic. They were everything that like they weren't classic biathlon like barn burner sprint finishes but the shooting ranges on the men's when latipov missed his first four shots i mean you can't you can't draw, write that kind of story and then and then Quinton fiume chasing the, that elusive sixth medal and he goes to the panel and finishes fourth i mean just the way those two things played out they were just phenomenal stories and um, they weren't american stories but they were phenomenal sports stories and i just really enjoy that's what i'll remember about these games from from the calls that i that i was a part of what were the big surprises? Like, were there moments where you're feeling like, yeah, just you didn't see something coming or, or just big surprises in the results that, uh, that were exciting to call? I didn't, didn't expect Teresa Uhog to get challenged in the 10 K classic. No, uh, he's been one of her. And, and if anyone was going to challenge her, we thought it would be Frida Carlson. So the fact mm. that the Finns, that both Nis uh, Kurtu Niskanen and Krista Farmakoski came on so strong after kind of floundering a little bit the last couple of years, that was that was very unexpected. But I know both those athletes pretty well, and, and I, I was so happy to see it's such an exciting race. I was kind of surprised at how few surprises there were, honestly. I mean, I think that the conditions and the brutality of the course and the altitude really, really had the most talented athletes rise to the top. And you know, you can talk about doping all you want. There's always going to be the talk of doping, but the fact of the matter is the people that you, that were the favorites still were at the top of the heap, except for maybe, except for maybe character Niskanen, but she had a sign of it. She won a world cup earlier in the year in a 10 K classic. So it wasn't that big of a surprise, but biathlon for the most part was, was a total, was it was a hierarchical set of finishes that I didn't expect because the Olympics were up into the last five Olympics have been really up and down with biathlon results for how homo, how much homogeneity there was in the, in the favorites winning all the medals, that was a little bit surprising. Um, and it's not that, but, but I think the conditions and the course and the venue itself kind of helped that along. And I've always said having that mixed relay first to kind of get rid of those jitters for all those favorite biathletes who come in super nervous and miss shots in the first sprint, if it's the first event, the sprint sets up the pursuit. And if you, if the favorites miss in the sprint and they're out of it in the pursuit, there's, 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 30% of the medals right there. So I think, I think, I think the, the layout of biathlon, I was surprised at how I was surprised that, that the people who ran them ran the metal board in biathlon did it in, in a sport that had, doesn't normally happen like that in, in, in biathlon and cross country. It was, I, I think that was also pretty homogeneous. I think the people we kind except of, I mean, the Norwegian, men, the Norwegian men kind of surprised. What was that? Said except for Germany in the relays. Germany. Women's Ger relays. That was a huge one. Yeah. Sorry. Germany in the relay and the mix and the, and this and the sprint relay, it was huge. Yeah. Yeah. Germany was good excited for them. Yeah. 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 I, I got interviewed by Norwegian TV before the I think it was before the team sprinters, but no, it was before the relay, the four person relay. And they said, Who's on your podium? And I I gave them six countries. And they said, No, that's six countries. And I said, Yeah. Like I honestly don't know who it's gonna be. <laughs> Um, and yeah. that was exciting because for the first time that I can remember, it wasn't like, oh, well, Norway's probably going to win. Sweden will probably be second. You know, it really right. was just wide open. Yeah. Was, was Germany at least in your top six? They were. 
they oh, were yeah. they were my dark horse <laughs> we both had them as dark horses yep and it's it is interesting like once you start really looking more closely because that was a big surprise for me and uh but then you start looking and you see like oh they've had like they've been in the top 10 they've been right there individually mm-hmm. in each of the races so far so actually this makes a lot of sense yeah sour bray was really kind of the x factor sour bray sour bray in the in the four by um that was pretty that was like that's the thing like you have somebody pop up at the olympics at 21 years of age and they're like they're on it changes the profile of your of your metal metal potential um any other moments that that stood out or or just thoughts on kind of reflecting back on the experience well, so I, I didn't commentate the, the 30 and 50. Um, I was in Park City, but I got the opportunity to watch the 30K with Jesse's parents and with her fiance. And uh, while I really missed being in the commentary booth with Chad and Steve, uh, it was pretty special to watch that race with Jesse's family and be watching the screen and then looking back and seeing how much emotion was all in- invested for them and just how that race just kind of went all over and you just didn't know what was going to happen. And of course, I'm sitting next to Wade and he's telling me that Jesse, you know, 30 hours before had been up all night. And it's like, oh my gosh, and of all races to be going into with an energy deficit, that's got to be the hardest. So just so exciting. And, and just such an emotional moment, I think when, when she crossed the line and, uh, and we just watched that all together. So it was kind of cool to see both sides of the coin. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty, I would, I would have loved to have known that, but obviously they weren't going to let that out of the bag, um, until after the race, but, um, that, I would say that what was really cool for me is that to be able to announce with Keegan, was really special. I mean, Keegan and I have known each other for a long time, but we've never really been like, we've never been, we've never gotten to know each other. And I think the time that we got to spend together was really, I, I, it was special for me because I, I mean, Keegan, somebody I've looked up to for so long and, and she's done so much for this sport and I don't want to make you blush or anything, Keegan, but you, you really are, I got to spend that time with you and I kind of got a glimpse into a better glimpse into why you are so transformative to skiing in this country. And I will never, I mean, I appreciate that more than anything I do in the booth. Like, I think that I live and breathe these sports and to be able to spend this time with you and get to get to be closer with you. It was really special for me. It was kind of, I didn't want to, I didn't want to like burst into your, your party at, at the Berkey last week. I would have loved like sat down and have coffee or something just to like, cause we never really got to kind of, kind of close out the conversation the whole week you just took off in the middle of the night and and see at the Berkey and then we didn't hardly see each other at the Berkey so I just want to say just just uh, you know it's been it's been a real pleasure to get to know you the way the way I have um this last month and it's been it was really special to me so that I'll always remember that thanks I really enjoyed it as well um Last thing, Chad, uh, I just wanted to kind of plug that you, you will be, you mentioned it before, but you're going to be calling the Paralympics. Um, Mm -hmm. and are there, you know, specific races or athletes that you are most excited to watch or call? Yeah. I mean, I've been obviously Oksana masters and, um, uh, Kendall Gretsch are really big names. Um, I haven't called a pair game since, since 2010. So I have a little out of I'm not super in touch with it like I was in 2010, but um, I've spent the last week kind of immersed in it and marinating in it and like crunching numbers and looking at all the World Cup results and just trying to see what the competitive landscape looked like. And I thought I had it all dialed in and then the, the Russians and Belarusians are out. So it's going to really change the, the, the complexion of, of the week. And I've got to, that's kind of what I got to do after I get off is start working on that because we're on tomorrow night. Sitski by or uh, but the short course biathlons I think are 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 tomorrow night and um, it's for me it's an opportunity to kind of spread spread my wings I mean um, there's been talk about me trying to do other sports and I don't think people realize how hard it is to do other sports when you're really comfortable with the sports you've done so this is kind of like in my wheelhouse I kind of understand at least a little bit of the performance metrics of of these sports of both para biathlon and para cross country I'm not a, an expert at it in any way but my goal is to do what I always do is just to go in and give some sort of, as a color analyst, analyze what we're seeing and, and give uh, thoughtful and credible um, ideas about what we're seeing on the screen. And, and if I do that, I'll be happy. Well, thank you guys both so much for taking the time to do this. And uh, yeah, I hope, hopefully we'll be hearing your, both of your voices again on some sort of <laughs> big broadcast soon. All right. Thanks for having us. I hope so. Thanks for having us.
Thanks for listening, and thanks again to Boulder Nordic Sport and New Moon Ski and Bike for supporting this podcast.